You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. John chapter 5 is where we'll be today. Last week we finished up uh, John chapter 4 looking at the healing of the dying boy. We talked about how God wants to take our shallow faith to mature faith so that we believe and expect, expect his faithfulness before we actually see his faithfulness, reducing the amount of time it takes for us to trust him in the midst of difficulty. So God wants to take our faith, especially when it's in kind of a shallow state, he wants, us to, take, he wants to take that shallow, immature faith and grow it into maturity to where we are expecting his faithfulness before we, we actually see his faithfulness, that we, we understand his promises, we, we expect him to fulfill his promises, even when we're not seeing him or observing him do that from our limited perspective, all right? And so that's what happens with this individual who comes to Jesus desiring that he heal his boy, wants him to come all the way back to his town to do so, and Jesus challenges him about how, and really the whole crowd, about how they are simply looking for signs and not really expressing true belief. And so Jesus challenges that and rebukes it, but then ultimately heals this individual. And it takes faith on the part of the official to believe Jesus, to go back home without Jesus, anticipating that his son would be okay, would be healed. And so we talked about believing that God is bigger than we've ever heard, uh, that he can do things that, that maybe we haven't seen him do, that he can do greater things than what we've heard about. We saw that Jesus had been doing some miracles, but ultimately uh, hadn't done something like this, at least in the Gospel of John, had not healed on this level, and we see him do so. And so we see this guy expecting that Jesus can do that. Um, so he believed that God was bigger than what he had heard about. He believed God's word over his own personal experience. He believed the word that Jesus said, I am healing him. You can go back home without seeing any evidence of that. And then lastly, we talked about believing God more than you hear about uh, when you hear about him from others that we need to allow other people's experience of um, God coming through and keeping his promises to grow our own faith, that we shouldn't so quickly dismiss other people's accounts of what God is doing, that instead we should believe those accounts, oftentimes allowing it to strengthen our own faith. So we talked about Jesus being concerned about shallow faith. We talked about him testing and strengthening our faith to grow it. And then we talked about him rewarding proven faith, that ultimately this child is healed because of this man's faith. And so application-wise, we talked about uh, finding ways to believe Jesus more last week, finding evidence uh, of him working around us and believing in him more because of that, finding ourselves believing more when we hear others' testimonies, that when we hear other people testifying about what God's doing, that we allow our faith to increase and grow. And then allowing our own experiences with God to be shared with others around us so that their faith can increase as well. All right, and so that brings us to John chapter 5. And John chapter 5, verse 1 says, And uh, and after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was uh, there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. 
Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Our summary sentence for today, as the Lord of both sickness and Sabbath, Jesus wants our beliefs about him to lead us to obey his words in a way that results in serving others around us. As the Lord of both sickness and Sabbath, and we'll see Jesus in both those roles. He's, he's Lord over sickness. He obviously is through his healing powers. He's also Lord over the Sabbath and that he gets to define how the Sabbath is kept. He wants our beliefs about him to lead us to obey his words in a way that results in serving others around us. So he wants us to believe rightly about him. He wants that belief to lead towards obedience, specifically the type of obedience that leads towards serving others around us. So the Jews in this story would say that they believed rightly about God and they were striving to be obedient towards God. But the error of their ways is that their obedience wasn't necessarily leading them to serve others around them. For our kids, God wants our beliefs about him to help us love others. God wants our beliefs about him to help us love others. So he wants our beliefs about him to lead us into obedience, that we obey the words that he says, but we do it in a way that results in serving others around us. I think this is one of those passages that if you're just plowing through, reading big chunks of scripture, not pausing and stopping ever, you might run right through this story and miss some of the main points of what's really taking place here. Um, I put in my notes that I think this passage is as much, if not more, about dealing with legalism than it is about dealing with a handicap. There's a great healing that takes place in this passage, right? But there's no mention of anybody's faith growing from this. We're not even sure if this guy who is healed actually becomes a follower of Jesus. We don't know. John's not really concerned about the healing part that takes place here. He's not concerned about this guy's faith. He's not concerned about how it increased the faith of others. What he is concerned about is how Jesus used it to address an issue amongst the religious leaders of that day. And so really, the healing is kind of a secondary part of this story. We read it and we think it's the big part of the story. Oh, Jesus healed a handicapped man that had been handicapped for 38 years. Absolutely true that he did but he did it for a much greater purpose than simply allowing this man to have a brighter future ahead of him than he had previously meeting Jesus. What do we mean by legalism? Well, we're going to see that what, the, what this group of Jews did was they had taken a law about the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments, so obviously an important law, not something that's just a secondary level of concern. I mean, a big deal. Um, it should have been a big deal for them. But they had taken that law, and in order to make sure that they kept it, they had added things to it to really help make sure they they, they kept it. 
Um, which again isn't necessarily a bad thing, because we do this type of thing too. And so I, I want to mention this up front because I think too oftentimes we read these accounts in Scripture and never pause to think, am I guilty of doing what the Jews were doing or what the Pharisees were doing? Am I ever guilty of being that individual? Because nobody wants to see themselves in that type of light. Nobody wants to see themselves as the type of person who would care more about this guy picking up his bed than about the fact that he had just been healed, right? But I think too oftentimes we can be guilty of valuing aspects of our theology so much that we kind of miss the point of the theology, right? So one example that I thought of because I deal with this regularly at Trinity, parents meeting with me and wanting to, wanting me to impose their family rules on the entire middle school because why would I not see it that way? Like, like this is obviously the best way to do it, and parents that aren't doing it this way are potentially in sin because of it. One example, um, sexual purity, right? Like we see that clearly in Scripture that God desires purity for us, right? He wants the, the, that relationship to take place within marriage. We saw that last week in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, that Jesus addresses her behavior, right? Um, and so we see that, we read that in Scripture, and we say, okay, we need to make sure that we put some parameters in place to make sure that happens, right? That we, that we stay protected, that we stay pure. So for, uh, for our teenage kids or kids that are starting to, to grow and mature and hit puberty, we put things in place to help protect them from a purity standpoint, right? So we're going we're gonna to put limits and parameters on whether they get a device or don't get a device, what age they get that device, what security systems are applied to that device, right? When our kids start to get of dateable age, we start making decisions. When can they date? When can they not date? Who can they date? Where can they go when they date, right? When they get to the age of junior, senior year, and they start looking at prom dresses, we start making decisions about what is an appropriate prom dress, what is not an appropriate prom dress, what is modest, what is not modest, what is going to cause temptation for their date, what is not going to cause temptation for their date, right? And these are all appropriate, healthy discussions, We err when we start to take our strong opinions about some of those things that we place in in our family structure to make sure that sexual purity is achieved. We err when we start to say, if you're not doing it this way, then you don't care about sexual purity like I do, right? We start to trend towards this mindset where we say, oh, if you're not doing it our way, then you don't care about keeping the Sabbath. Obviously, you don't keep the Sabbath holy because you don't do it in this manner to really ensure that no work takes place. Does that make sense? Like we have to really be careful that we understand what does God's word say? What types of things do we do to help keep the, keep the things that God says to us? And I think, it, again, it's absolutely appropriate for us to interpret how do we do this as our family. But we have to be really careful that we don't take those additions and apply them to somebody else and potentially look down upon them for not doing it the way that we're doing it. That's exactly what's happening here. The Pharisees, the Jews, had said, hey, it's really important to keep the Sabbath holy. We're going to put some things in place that make sure that we do this. It's going to really make sure that we keep the Sabbath holy. And if you don't do these things, we're going to consider you breaking the Sabbath, even though technically it was not the case, right? So um, giving your child a device at an age earlier than I would does not mean that you have violated sexual purity, right? 
Just because you're not taking the same parameters that I am doesn't mean that you've broken God's command there. And so we have to be really careful that we don't become guilty of what the Jews were doing here, adding things to really make sure that they kept the Sabbath holy, but then expecting everybody to do it exactly how they thought it should be done. All right, so we'll talk more about that and exactly what they had required in a few minutes. Second thing I want to kind of share as a point of introduction, man, it's really confusing as what's happening within this pool, right? Like some of you probably have a verse four in your translation. How many of you have a verse four? Because all I have is verse three and verse five. Anybody? So some translations go ahead and insert the verse four. Other translations will make a note that, hey, in some Bibles, there's a verse four here, and you have to look to like the study notes or the, the, um, the little notes on the side that would, that would give you verse four. The reason verse four is not in everybody's Bible is because it's not in the earliest manuscripts. So we don't have any of the original manuscripts. We don't have the original copy of John writing this gospel. We have copies of copies of copies. The earliest copies that we have do not have verse four. Now, some of the later copies that we have do have verse four. So which one's accurate? We're not totally sure. But because the earliest manuscripts don't have it, we don't include it as a definite part of God's word because it may have been added later as a point of clarification. Because this man talks about the purpose of the pool that he feels like he has to get into it to be healed. Well, why is that the case? Well, verse 4 gives us a little bit of insight. Does somebody have verse 4 in their Bible? They could read it. Bobby, read it for us. I have no idea why I'm on the New King James. That's where I'm at. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. All right, so there's this belief or legend that an angel would periodically come down and in an invisible way stir the water with its finger, and then if you got in the pool first, you would be healed of whatever infirmity you had, right? Was that really happening or was it not really happening? I, mean, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, I don't think that's, that's definitely not the point of the passage as well. John doesn't even really touch on it and maybe didn't even include verse four in here to even confuse us. That may have been added later. What is clear is that there was at least the belief that if you did this, you could be healed. Now, does that mean that there had to be results for this to, to, to continue to garner such attention? Maybe, maybe not, but we know that there's plenty of people around the world that believe that there's certain healing powers and certain things and it garners a following, right? People will see... Uh, a vision of Mary in a pancake, the way it was cooked on a, on a skillet, and think, hey, we got to travel to that pancake, and it may have healing powers. So people do crazy things to, to try to experience healing when they're kind of at the end of their rope, right? Um, so whether this is really happening or not, again, is not really the point of the passage. Um, John doesn't seem overly concerned about addressing the validity of this legend, if it's not an angel that's doing this, there was very likely the possibility that the rippling was due to a subterranean spring that contributed to this pool. The point of mentioning this is that this man was hopeless and in need of help only Jesus could give to him. Whether this healing was happening or not, this man was never going to experience it because he was never going to find a way into the pool. He had exhausted his efforts. If he hadn't gotten there in the last 38 years, he probably was never going to get there. And that's kind of his feeling when Jesus asks him about, do you want to be healed or not? Okay? So let's look at this and let's start to break this down and see what it means for us. Number one, understand that God acts with timing and with purpose. Understand that God acts with timing 
and purpose. For our kids, God does things at the right time and for the right reasons. God never just acts. He never just does things because we ask him to do those things. He doesn't just do things arbitrarily. He does them with the correct timing and with the correct purpose. They are always part of a bigger part of his plan, okay? And this is certainly the case here in this miracle. He is acting with timing and with purpose, all right? First thing we see here, he performs the miracle to identify as the Messiah. Back in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3. This is a prophecy about things to come in God's plan, particularly with the Messiah. It says, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus is particularly working this miracle to identify himself with this Old Testament hope that when the Messiah arrived, he would be able to heal at this level. Okay, so that's the first thing we need to recognize. Is Jesus concerned about this individual? Yes. Does he care about his needs? Yes. But ultimately, he is doing this to present himself as the Messiah. He will use accounts like this to reaffirm John the Baptist's faith before John the Baptist dies, when John the Baptist is questioning, man, did we get it right or did we get it wrong? And Jesus says, are lame people walking? And John would say, yes. And Jesus is like, well, there's your answer, right? Like, if I'm doing this, then obviously I'm the Messiah because this is the type of things that the Messiah is supposed to do. All right, so he performs the miracle to identify as the Messiah. Number two, he performs the miracle for this man only. There are multitudes of invalids here to choose from. You ever pause to think, why didn't he heal everybody that's sitting by the pool? This can't be the only guy who's been sitting here for a very long time who is yet to get into the pool. And we're still not even sure if people are really being healed by the pool. This guy definitely gets healed. There's no faking this. This isn't a, he thought he was incapable incapable of walking. All of a sudden, he, he found the faith and the resolve to start walking. I mean, this is a genuine, real healing. Why doesn't Jesus do this for everybody that's sitting there? I mean, he's certainly powerful enough to do it certainly capable enough to do it. Why, why doesn't he heal everybody here? Not only does he only heal this man, he seems to choose like the worst candidate to do it to. Like if you're only going to pause and take time to heal one guy, we probably would not have chosen this guy. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, um, either he's a guy who's unwilling to ask for help or he's the type of person that no one wanted to help, right? Like, why can't he find anybody to put him in the pool in the amount of time that he's been sitting there? Because people might would have walked, walked by and said, we don't want to help you. Because Jesus seems to indicate later in this passage that maybe this guy is in this condition because of sinful choices. He tells the guy here, uh, when he, when he re-greets him later, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. At least introducing the idea that maybe this guy had had this happen to him because of previous sin. 
So, so he's an individual who nobody's willing to help. And it may be because of choices that he's made in his life that have caused people to just kind of dismiss him. He couldn't help himself. He knew it. He was, the most, he was uh, there most likely due to his sin life. He brings nothing to the table for being chosen. He seems to choose the worst candidate here to heal. But what's interesting in this passage, it's not like Jesus didn't know the reaction that was coming. But what do we get here? They start to persecute Jesus because of this. Which again reminds me that Jesus will take the worst and go to the cross for him. Because this act right here starts a chain of event reaction that leads to the cross. He doesn't ever recover from healing on the Sabbath here. The Jews are unforgiving about this. And they begin to plot and persecute and try to get him dead. So Jesus makes a decision here that says, okay, previously in towns, people are believing in me, accepting me. Their faith is being strengthened by my miracles. I'm about to do something crazy right here. I'm about to, I'm about to, I'm about to tick some people off that is going to ultimately lead to my crucifixion. Who's going to be the candidate that's going to send me to the cross? This guy right here who nobody wants to help, who everybody else has just kind of given up on, maybe because he's put himself in this position himself. And everybody's like, you've gotten what you deserve, dude. And Jesus says, this is the guy who is going to start the chain reaction for getting me to the cross. He performs this miracle for this man only. Number three, he performs the miracle to attack their Sabbath theology. He could have chosen any day to do this, but he chose this one specifically. He could have done this the day before. He could have done this the day after. This guy was certainly not, his life wasn't in jeopardy, right? He'd been living with this condition for 38 years. Jesus could have easily looked at his clock and said, oh, it's the Sabbath. It's okay for me to do this on the Sabbath, but it's going to offend some people. I'll just wait till tomorrow. Like, I want to heal this guy, have compassion on this guy, care about this guy. I'll just wait until it's least offensive. I think Jesus showed up and said, it's the Sabbath. Like, like this is the worst day to do this, and this is the day I'm going to do it because I need to fix this problem. I need to fix this theology. He chooses specifically to do it on this Sabbath day to correct their theology. Number four, he performs the miracle on this specific Sabbath. Now, I don't know if you thought about this. Again, if you're just plowing through the Gospel of John, you don't pause long enough to think about this. The guy's been an invalid for 38 years. He's probably not 38 years old, especially if it's due to sin, right? Jesus is early 30s, late 20s, somewhere around there, right? This is his first time to Jerusalem? No. He's been to Jerusalem countless times probably. He's been to Jerusalem already in the account here in John, and that doesn't even account for his early life, right? We know he was at the temple when he was 12, and his family can't find him, right? He has been to Jerusalem multiple times. You ever thought about the fact that the invalid was there every time probably? Like, here we are in Jerusalem. We're showing up. I'm going to cleanse the temple. I'm going to do some miracles here. There's an invalid who's been there for 36 years, 37 years. Not quite 38 years yet. I really am compassionate towards him. I want to take care of him. I want to heal his need. Not today, though. Like, there was a specific reason that he chose this specific Sabbath. He could have come on any other Sabbath and, and done this theology addressing as well. But he chooses this one. 
Right? He's very intentional with how he performs this miracle, which again is why I'm saying this isn't just about this miracle. There's a whole lot more going on in this story than just the fact that Jesus healed a guy who was paralyzed. There is timing and purpose attached to what he does here. What does that mean for us? The implication is Jesus may or may not choose to heal or act in your life. But we can trust whatever he does is based on his perfect timing and purpose. Man, he may choose to heal and he may choose not to heal. Or he may choose to provide a job or he may choose not to provide a job. He may choose to do it today. He may choose to do it three years from now. What we can trust, and again, this book is all about us increasing our belief in Jesus. What we can trust is that he acts with perfect timing and with perfect purpose. Something would have been missed greatly had he healed this guy on a, on a regular day of the week. He could have done it. This guy would have been extremely grateful for it, right? I'm sure this guy would say, man, I would have loved you to have done this when I was 18 years old or 18 years ago. Why'd you have to wait till 38 years of, of being in this condition? Jesus says, because it's bigger than just healing you. And it's bigger than just the healing part because he leaves a bunch of people there in their state, doesn't heal them. Probably some better candidates to be healed. Maybe some people with actual faith already in him and he doesn't choose to heal them. And we're not told why. We're not told why. But when I read this, I have to see this and walk away from this as a follower of Jesus saying, man, sometimes he heals, sometimes he doesn't. But whatever he's choosing to do, he's choosing to do it because of perfect timing and perfect purpose. Understand that God acts with timing and purpose. Some of you have been praying for the same thing for years, and you've yet to see God do something that you can observe. Who knows how much stuff's happening behind the scenes, setting up the opportunity for him to answer your prayer. But you think, man, for years I've been praying for this, asking for this, and God's yet to act. God's yet to move. God's yet to heal. God's yet to do this. Trust in the fact that there's perfect timing and purpose, that if that thing ever does happen in your life, you can trust that it wasn't supposed to happen before that day, wasn't supposed to happen after that day. There was a very real reason that it happened on that day. And if he never gives it to you, if he never gives it to you, trust that there's a bigger purpose. There's a bigger reason that it would, be, it would be not a good thing for you. Understand God acts with timing and purpose. Number two, don't let your theology become uncompassionate. Don't let your theology become uncompassionate. For our kids, God never wants us to be unloving towards others. Don't let your theology become uncompassionate. So this guy's sitting by this pool. He's paralyzed. He needs help. Jesus sees him lying there, knew what he had already been, been there for a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, none of their steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. That's the part that's important to John. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. It's the Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
God never wants us to be unloving towards others. Number one, the Jews had opportunity to serve this man on non-Sabbath days and had not. It's not specifically told to us that he's been here for the 38 years that he's had this condition, but we're definitely told that he's been here a long time. Far longer than this Sabbath day, and no one had attempted to help him, including the Jews who are criticizing the situation now. The Jews had opportunity to serve this man on non-Sabbath days and did not. Number two, the Jews were more concerned about their rules than God's laws and people. I left out the apostrophe S there. The Jews were more concerned about their rules than God's laws and people. I mean, you read this and think about how crazy this is. The Jews were more concerned about it being the Sabbath than the man being healed, right? Like, like their shock is completely misapplied here, and I think they're in real shock, right? Like, here's a guy who we've seen for years sitting by this pool that can't walk. Hey, that guy's walking around, and he's got his bed in his hand. Like, it's the Sabbath day. Are you serious? Like, what are you thinking? Like, that's their approach to the situation, their, their shock is what he's doing versus what he's doing, right? Like he is walking, and there's no shock applied to that situation. Rewind to like how, how I'm trying to connect this for us. This is like somebody coming away from the prom and saying, I got saved, and you're like, but why are you wearing that dress? Like, like that's a really inappropriate dress that you're wearing. That's not appropriate. We have modesty standards around here. It's like, do you get what she's saying? Like she got saved. Like she's a Christian now. And you're concerned about the dress that she's still wearing because it doesn't meet your standards of modesty. That's what's happening here. Your, your standards for keeping the Sabbath don't match my standards. I don't care if you're walking. I don't care if you hadn't walked in 38 years. You're not keeping the Sabbath holy. Like th- this is a completely misconstrued mindset, but sometimes not that far off from how we feel Sometimes that our theology becomes, some, becomes something that we're so prideful about. Our theology has progressed into practical and personal application for us that we're trying to impose upon others, and they're not receiving it, and so we become judgmental. And that's what's happening here. They're more concerned about their rules than God's laws and people. They would not allow themselves to rejoice over the miracle because it went against their expectations. Jesus isn't fitting into their expectations so they have to dismiss it. The Jews are ready to kill Jesus because he's working on the Sabbath and calling God his Father. And neither of these are against the law, right? It's not against the law for him to heal because there were so many laws about showing compassion. It's also not against the law to make yourself equal with God if you are equal with God, right? It's against the law if you're not equal with God. But here's the thing. The Jews never pause here to ask if he is. They just hear him say, oh, God's your father? That can't be true. That's blasphemy. They never pause to say, well, it would be okay if he is your father. So we need to, we need to ask ourselves first, is he your father? Okay, he's not, then it's blasphemy. Or he is your father. Well, then you should be claiming that. Right? They're ready to kill him for things that really aren't against the law. Jesus is violating their traditions about the Sabbath versus the actual law of normal occupational work. If you read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11, this is when the law of the Sabbath is originally given. 
the intent behind the Sabbath law was for people to take a day of rest from their normal occupational work, to have that time of refreshment. We see it continually reiterated in some other passages. Nehemiah chapter 13 is one passage where the Jews are rebuked for not keeping the Sabbath properly. And we, we can see some things that they're doing. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not God, uh, our, our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. What's he, specific, what's he specifically addressing here? Well, they're, they're continuing their normal occupational work. I mean, they're, they're buying and trading and selling like they do every other day of the week. That's where they were in violation of the Sabbath. This is where God feels like he's got to step in and address it. They aren't doing what he's asked them to do, and that's to take a day of rest. Jeremiah 17, 21 through 22 is another passage that you could reference. What are some examples of how they had added to the law? Well, one, you were allowed to wear a handkerchief on the Sabbath day, but you couldn't carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath day, right? So, one commentator said, so technically, if you needed the handkerchief downstairs, you would need to wear it in your head, bring it downstairs, untie it, and set it on the table, and then you weren't guilty of breaking the Sabbath. But if you simply took it from upstairs to downstairs in your hands, you're now performing work on the Sabbath according to the additional parameters that they had added. You could only walk 1,000 yards away from your house. I heard Dallas talking in his group about how they they expanded upon that because they would take rope and try to stretch out what was considered their area so they could walk further on the Sabbath. So technically this rope is touching my house, so really I'm just walking around in my house. And so they would, they would try to expand upon it, but they were so careful to make sure they didn't deviate from what they believed was God's intent behind the law. You couldn't look in a mirror on the Sabbath day because you might be tempted to adjust what you saw in the mirror and it would be work to pull a gray hair out of your hair. So you couldn't even look in a mirror for fear of temptation that you would want to change something that you saw in the mirror. You could spit on the Sabbath day, but you could not scuff the ground where you did. Otherwise, you were cultivating the soil, and that would be work, right? So this is the type of burden that had become keeping the Sabbath day. It wasn't a day of rest. It was a day of paranoia. Like, am I doing anything that could be misconstrued as breaking the Sabbath, of doing work. Tradition was being placed above the command for love and compassion towards others. They're so concerned about keeping the Sabbath, they have forgotten the fact that there were also commands for love and compassion. Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. These are important commands of God as well. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
God's laws never contradict each other. They never conflict with each other. God's law was to keep the Sabbath. God's law was also to show compassion. Keeping the Sabbath meant not working, not, not showing compassion. And what's crazy is that the Jews were already demonstrating a willingness to elevate one law above their Sabbath traditions. In John chapter 7, a passage that we'll get to soon. John chapter 7, verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up and into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man is learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but, is who, uh, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He's simply telling them, hey, you guys are willing to keep God's laws on the Sabbath day. You circumcise. If a kid is born and his date of circumcision falls on the Sabbath day, you're not going to violate God's commands and not circumcise on the Sabbath. You're absolutely going to circumcise on the Sabbath. That's what you do. He says, and you're going to get angry with me for showing compassion on the Sabbath day. He goes on to say in Luke chapter 14, how many of you would not help uh, your ox or your neighbor if they were in a pit on the Sabbath day? Would you walk by and say, I'm sorry, it's Sabbath day, I can't do that. No, he says, you, you, would, you would logically say, I need to do this, even though it is the Sabbath day, because this is the right thing to do. Jesus is arguing for the fact that you use common sense a lot of times when it involves keeping the Sabbath, and yet you fail to do it all the time. They never ask if he's God's son before claiming this blasphemy. They're more concerned about investigating the Sabbath breaking than the miracle working. Notice they're not investigating whether this guy's really healed or not. They're not investigating, hey, is this a lookalike? Like they're completely unimpressed by the fact this guy was an invalid for 38 years and now he's walking around. They're completely unconcerned about the fact that the Messiah is supposed to be able to heal paralyzed people. They just completely dismiss that and they say, we want details about what he told you about the Sabbath. We want details about whether he told you you could pick up your bed or not. They're completely missing the point. They're completely tied up with the wrong things. They totally missed that the Sabbath itself is pointing to Jesus. Right? Lest anybody sit here and, and begin to be paranoid about whether or not you're keeping the Sabbath. Colossians 2, 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's a great summary for everything we looked at in Hebrews, right? Like all this Old Testament stuff, it's meant to prepare the way for Jesus. Once Jesus is here, a lot of this other stuff's not necessary because it's interpreted by Jesus. He proves these things. They totally miss that point. Jesus continues to work with these people and makes a point at the end here that if God can work on the Sabbath, which is something that they had talked about. In their tradition, they had actually talked about, is it okay for God to work on the Sabbath day? And they had made the concession that, yes, while God rests on the seventh day, he does continue to have to work to uphold the universe. So God gets a pass 
He'll get to uphold the universe because that's going to be God-like work. And so they excused God for working on the Sabbath, which, wow, thank you so much for excusing God who made the Sabbath day, right? They excused him from working because he's God. And so Jesus is simply making the point here at the end of chapter, or at the end of our passage for today, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They connected the fact with what he was doing there. Sometimes critics say Jesus never claimed to be God. He certainly presented himself as God, and he got the reaction of the people by doing so. They killed him for it, right? They killed him for it. But Jesus' point is, is, if it's okay for God to work on the Sabbath, it's okay for me to work on the Sabbath, if you want to call this work, because I'm God. Because I'm God. The implication for us, when our religious practices take precedent over human needs around us, our theology has failed in its purpose. When our religious practices take precedent over human needs around us, our theology has failed in its purpose. Connor's going to be in a situation soon in going to Snowbird where he's going to have opportunities to serve and minister to kids who don't come from the same religious background as he does, who don't come from the same family values as he does, right? So let me just talk to Connor for a second. Connor, this is a great application for you because what a mistake it would be for Connor to be talking to a student after a sermon, right? And to, to pick up on something that this kid does that we would deem uh, unwise if he's trying to follow God's standards, to, to really harp on a, a piece that we have kind of added to God's word to help protect us and to completely miss the opportunity to minister to a student who needs to talk about something that the Holy Spirit's doing in his heart after hearing a sermon at Snowbird. Like this, this, this happened for me when I was working at Snowbird, where I would interact with kids who were coming from completely different church settings, completely different types of youth pastor settings, weren't necessarily being uh, trained and matured in ways that I would prefer right? And I had, to, I had to reach past that and not harp on, on this part that I would want to see changed and done differently to be able to minister to that student and not miss an opportunity to show compassion to that individual. And that's true for us as we step out of these walls and we go to our workplaces and to our families and to our hobbies, to our neighborhoods, where we interact with people who, who don't necessarily have the exact same worldview that we do as far as how to apply God's laws that we need to be very intentional to take God for what he says at his word, to maintain some flexibility as to how that's applied daily within our families, not imposing that upon other people, right? And so when our religious practices take precedent over human needs around us, then our theology's really failed. It's really failed. It's become a prideful thing for us to hang on to, and it's failed to do what it was supposed to do, and that's to help us love God and love people. Number three. Last point, we need to embrace the expectations that come from meeting Jesus. All right, so Jesus heals this guy. Then the the Jews get involved, and they want to harp on whether or not it was the Sabbath or not and what he's doing on the Sabbath and how that's wrong. They ask him about who this man was. He doesn't know. He didn't get the name of him, which, again, leads me to believe this guy's faith doesn't necessarily increase, per se. The healing wasn't for this man as much as it was to attack this theology. He says, you know, he didn't know who it is. Jesus had withdrawn. 
Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. For our kids, following Jesus means we seek to avoid sin. While it's not the main purpose of this story, Jesus does connect with this guy again to at least communicate some expectations about what this guy's life is supposed to look like moving forward. Number one, we're responsible for responding to the words that Jesus has spoken. We are responsible for responding to the words that he has spoken. This man responded in faith to the words spoken to him at the beginning of the story. He did exactly what he was told. We're not told if Jesus touched him. We're not told if Jesus helped him up. All we're told is that he is communicated to and told to get up, take your bed, and walk. There, 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 I think there's certainly an aspect of faith here where the guy had to make movement in that direction to get up as an expression that he believed what Jesus had just said would heal him. So this guy does respond to these initial words of Jesus. He begins to get up, and he, and he realizes that he can get up, and he begins to carry his bed. We are responsible for responding to the words that Jesus has spoken. Number two... While physical ailments are not always the result of sin, sometimes they are. Jesus at at least leaves the door open that there are certain things that can occur in your life because of sin. Now, you read in John chapter 9, and I used to always read this and think, man, why are these guys being ridiculous? It says, as he passed by, he, talking about Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You're thinking like, man, why are they so insensitive to think this guy's in sin? Like they're, they're much like Job's friends who accused him of being in sin when he was enduring all that he was enduring. But if you think in context of, hey, this other guy may have been healed because he was sick and paralyzed because of sin, it's not crazy to think that the, the, the disciples would say, oh, this must be true of this guy too, because we've already dealt with a guy who was in a similar spot. And Jesus says, no, that's not always the case. Sin and sickness, or sickness and, and health issues are not always a result of sin. Sometimes they're a result because God just wants them there for his glory, and he's going to use them for his glory, right? Um, Joni Erickson Tata is a great example of, of somebody who is paralyzed And I would never assume that that was because of sinful choices that she was making, but instead an opportunity for God's glory to be magnified in her life based on how she has responded to that injury, right? Sometimes it's a result of sin. A lot of times it's not. How do you know the difference? I think only the individual who's going through it can know. I don't think it's a job for us to determine, are you sick because of sin or are you sick because of God's glory? That's something for the Holy Spirit to convict that individual of. But what Jesus tells this individual, this guy right here, he says, go and sin no more so that nothing worse happens to you. Because it could if you don't make the right choices moving forward, right? Do we see any precedent of that in the New Testament? Yeah, absolutely. When Paul's talking about the misuse of the Lord's Supper, he's like, some of you guys are sick and some of you guys are dying because you're abusing the Lord's Supper. So there's definitely a correlation where sickness and death can happen because of sin. Not all the time, right? Somebody close to us dies in a car wreck this week. Does that mean they did something sinful to deserve that? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And we can't know for sure in that situation, really. Right? But Jesus opens up the door and says, hey, 
You have a responsibility to move forward differently. Move forward differently than you were prior to meeting me. Should always cause us to pause and evaluate as we're going through things. Is there anything sinful in my life that needs to be confessed? Always a great reason to pause and evaluate when something undesirable is happening in our life. Is this God getting my attention or not? Is it always God getting your attention? No, it's not. So we don't need to become so so scrutinizing of our life that, oh man, like I'm, I must have done something yesterday to cause this. If we're not convicted by it, then no. But Jesus at least opened the door for us to pause and to reflect. Number three, a true experience with Jesus leads to a new attitude regarding sin. He does expect this guy to have new expectations for himself for how he's going to live moving forward. Whatever sins this guy was used to in his life, Jesus expects some things to change now that he's been healed. And I would venture to say that he's also expecting this guy not to go back to his previous life before he was an invalid now that he has encountered Jesus. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Implication for us. Salvation by faith means choosing to believe the words of God over all the other words that are out there. That's essentially what Jesus is telling this guy. Believe my words, go and live differently. Don't believe the other words that you're going to hear out there that would lead you towards sinful things. Don't believe the other words, believe my words. And that's what salvation by faith is. It's believing God at his word and not listening to the other words that are out there. All right, so looking back, he's the Lord of both sickness and Sabbath. He wants our beliefs about him to lead to obedience, obeying his words in a way that results in serving others around us. Understand that God acts with timing and purpose. He may or may not choose to heal, but when he does, we can trust that whatever he does, it's based on his perfect timing and purpose. Don't let your theology become uncompassionate. When our religious practices take precedent over human needs around us, our theology has failed in its purpose. Embrace the expectations that come with following Jesus. It means choosing to believe his words over all the other words that are out there. Application for us this week. Number one, evaluate your life and determine if there is any willful, unconfessed sin that could result in sickness or worse and confess it. Is anybody going to get sick this week because of unconfessed sin? Probably not. But there's definitely a chance. Not because I think so, but because Jesus told this guy that. And it's not even a theology that we talk about much that, that, that you could get sick or, or something could happen to you this week because of willful unconfessed sin. And yet Jesus doesn't say a whole lot to this guy, right? All we've got recorded is get up and walk and sin no more. Like, you're well now, sin no more, lest something worse happens to you. Did he expect this guy to go and be perfect? No. This guy sinned again before the day was over. Did that mean he ended up back by the pool, paralyzed? No. He's not expecting perfection. But I do believe he's telling this guy, you can't continue in willful, unconfessed, rebellious actions and not think that God's going to do something about that. So we need to evaluate our life, determine if there's any willful, unconfessed sin that could result in sickness or worse, and confess it. Number two, evaluate whether there's anyone in your life that needs your compassion and help that you have ignored for far too long. Anyone in your life that needs your compassion and help that you've ignored for far too long. It's possible these Jews pass this guy every single day and never stop to evaluate if they could help him. 
one thing I like about working at Trinity is with the church and school connection, um, sometimes the church will intentionally hire individuals who are disabled, mentally challenged, and will give them jobs to work around the school. Sometimes in my busyness of serving our school, I'll walk by some of these individuals and pay them zero attention. And so I've gotten to the point where I'm trying to be more intentional to stop and to have a conversation with these individuals who are working. They're, they're sweeping our stairs. They're, they're washing our windows. And man, these, these people love to sit and talk. Like they want to have conversation. They want to hear about what's going on in your life. They want to tell you about what's going on in theirs. And if I'm not careful, I can easily dismiss them and say, oh, don't need to stop and talk to this person. I just need to, I need to, I'm busy. I am doing my things, right? Man, if my theology doesn't cause me to stop and pause and say, this is, this is a person created in the image of God, right? Whether they are fully capable of doing everything or not, they are created in the image of God. And they deserve a, a hello. They deserve a smile. They deserve a, a, a conversation, there may be people in your life like that that you have just continued to blow by daily, weekly, monthly, whatever. People that may need you in some form or fashion. I want to encourage you to pause and reflect and think, is there anybody in my life that, that needs help from me that I've withheld help from because of my busyness or, or because of just things going on with me? Number three. Evaluate whether there is any tendency to value an aspect of your theology too much that is causing you to be prideful. I started this whole thing off with us not dismissing too quickly that we're never guilty of being like the Jews or the Pharisees here. Man, are, are you ever guilty of taking aspects of your theology that have started to get lived out practically, so you do things in response to what you believe, are you ever guilty of expecting other people to do it exactly how you do it and to then judge them if they don't? Have you become prideful about your theology? That's what, that was, that's what turns people off about the church is when we do that type of thing. Certainly would have turned me off from going to, to be a part of what these Jews were a part of. Like If we can't celebrate guys walking around who've been paralyzed for 38 years because they're doing it on a day that you feel like they can't carry their bed, I don't think I want to be a part of that. We need to be careful that we don't impose certain things too quickly, too quickly on people, especially if it's not something that God has required of them. Okay? Family worship questions. Is there anyone that our family knows that could use our help this week? And number two, what are some of the consequences of sin that we see in the Bible? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this important uh, story, this important account. God, we read it on the surface, and we, we praise you and thank you today that you are a Lord of sickness that can heal in impossible-type situations. We thank you for reaching down into this guy's life who had basically given up hope that he could ever be healed. And you healed him with your words. God, it reminds us that as we pray today for people in our lives who are sick, who need you to come and to help them, that you're fully capable of doing that. God, help this story to remind us, though, that you'll only do it when it fits your timing and your purposes. And that's a good thing for us. That's not a selfish thing on your part. That's a good thing for us because your timing and your purposes are always for our good. 
So God, increase our faith and trust as we pray and wait for things, maybe 38 years plus, that we would continue to trust that your timing and your purpose is far more important than our desire. God, help us to not be guilty of of what we see in this passage. People who were so prideful about their theology and so prideful about the decisions they were making about their life, they failed to see opportunities around them to minister and to love others. God, help us to not be judgmental because people aren't choosing to follow you the ways that we are. God, help us to value your words. Help us to value your law. We certainly don't want to dismiss those things. We certainly want to challenge people to to live to those standards of holiness that you've called us to. But God, help us to be able to differentiate between our rules and your rules, our preferences and your commands. God, I pray for each one of us individually, those of us that have met Jesus, that we would understand the expectations that we are to live our lives differently. We're we're, We're to live intentionally to avoid sin, that we're to be regularly confessing it and fighting it and not tolerating it in our life. Help us to see the seriousness of it in the things that Jesus says to this man as well. God, we thank you so much for salvation. We thank you so much that you do save us, that you save the worst of us. We thank you for choosing to save this individual who was most likely the worst of the bunch. It reminds us that you wanted to save us as well. Thank you for going to the cross for for people who were enemies of you, who certainly had nothing to offer you. Thank you for loving us in that way. Help us to be faithful to love others that way too. God, help, us, help our theology to lead us to love you more, to obey you more, to love others around us more. Help us to have eyes to see that this week when we're given opportunities to, to serve people that we come in contact with. Help us not to, to blow by opportunities in our busyness or our tiredness. Help us to find ways to serve those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.